Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I have the pleasure to talk to the author of Finding Time, The Economies of Work-Life Conflict. The book is published by Harvard University Press this year. The author is Heather Boucher. Heather, how are you doing today? Fine, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your uh, podcast. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have read your book, um, and I've been excited uh, to, to have the chance to, to have you come on and talk about it. Why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself before we get into our conversation about the work? Thanks. Yeah. So I'm an economist uh, and I run uh, an organization now called the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. We look at whether and how inequality affects the economy and um, in the hopes of informing policymaking and what's happening in the broader policymaking community. So uh, the work that I've done in this book, looking at how uh, what's happening in families up and down the income spectrum and what policymakers can do about it and how that's good for the economy is sort of squarely within the mission of what we're thinking about here at Equitable Growth. And I will make one other note, which is that we are a grant-making institution. We um, give grants to academics who are interested in investigating these kinds of questions. So wanted to make sure that your listeners heard that as well. I suspect that our audience has tripled. As you have uh, made that statement, uh, everyone eager to find a good new source of funding. It's, it's something great and something maybe that we can link to um, on, on the website that so you can follow to the, the Washington Center for Equitable Growth website. So let's talk about this interesting book that you've written. Um, in the book, you, you write about the large changes in the U.S. economy that have shifted the nature of work and also family. So what has changed in the composition of the workforce over the last let's say, half century, and, and why does that change matter so much? Well, we all know that one of the biggest changes that has occurred um, within the family is the movement of women out of the home and into the workplace. We also know that we've seen this increase in families that have just a single provider, uh, typically it's a single mom. And um, a lot of times those conversations um, tend to be revolve around women. Those are two things that seem to be about changes that women have done or may only affect women. But um, the bigger economic story is that this shift in how women spend their time and in what families look like have real implications not just for women but for their families and that's everything from their children to the elderly parents that they may be caring for, that families care for, more, uh, not just women that families care for, but it also has real implications for their employers and for our economy more generally. So um, the opening... Uh, and a story is a story about what's, what's changed for women, but how this affects us all. A second layer um, is that the way that these changes have played out look very different across families depending on where they sit on the income distribution. For families at the bottom, um, we've seen this rise in single parenthood and um, incomes that have uh, actually fallen between 1979 and, and the present day. For families at the top and in the middle, you've seen um, a rise in dual earners. So both families have lost time, and neither family now, families at the bottom or the middle and the top, none of these families typically have a stay-at-home caregiver, but it's for different reasons. So it's either because there isn't 
a second caregiver in the house in the case of families at the bottom. And it's because both um, adults are in the labor market and families at the middle and the top. So you see this common outcome, but these different um, and different reasons that it's happening. And of course, for middle class families, you also see the squeeze where their incomes haven't risen as much and in previous eras. But of course, they've lost a lot of time. They're working harder, putting in more time, but they haven't seen the income gains. So, um, so you see these, this overlay of changes in how women are spending their time, this loss of that time, um, women's unpaid time in the house for, for families up and down the income distribution, alongside this income squeeze for most families except for those at the very top. So those are three big economic trends um, that I lay out in the beginning of the book. Now, we, we nearly had comprehensive or a somewhat comprehensive family policy in the 1970s, uh, but it failed. I wonder if you could recount for us uh, what policy was on the agenda and why it failed to be enacted. I'm so glad you asked about this because this is something that I only learned about um, over the past few years. And as, a, as somebody who spent uh, their life thinking about social policy, it was one of these like, wow, moments. Um, in the early 1970s, uh, President Nixon uh, had said that he was in favor of a universal child care bill that was sort of working its way through Congress. And um, Walter Mondale, who was in the Senate at the time, writes about this in, in, his, um, in his autobiography, his book, his memoirs that he published a number of years ago, um, how, you know, there was so much interest that some, you know, key leading officials in the Nixon White House were talking to him and, um, you know, uh, engaging on this issue. And um, the bill passed, uh, both the House and the Senate, um, to provide this universal comprehensive child care. And um, yet, at the end of the day, uh, Nixon vetoed the legislation, and he did so, uh, the story goes, evidently at the request of his advisor, Pat Buchanan, um, on the argument that it would, in, I'm paraphrasing here, but I quote it in the book, but that it would not be good for families to, to basically encourage um, and, and make it possible for women to work. Of course, this is in the early 1970s, in the middle of this long march of women into the labor market. So whether or not they signed this bill really did not affect um, how women spent their time. It just made it a lot harder for families. And it also was this massive missed opportunity, especially for um, low-income families who can't afford quality child care. But I will actually you know, state for the record that it's not just the very low. It's families up into the, the, the middle and upper middle classes, depending on where you live in the United States, who can't afford quality care, many researchers think that uh, most childcare in the United States is of poor to middling quality. So this was this, um, this moment where the federal government had been prepared to say, yes, we see what's going on in American families. We see your economic anxiety, and we're going to deal with it as something that is absolutely important, not just to families, but our economy, which is how we are um, preparing the next generation. And instead of taking that step, Nixon said, no, actually, we think that it's not in the government's interest to actually support families as they, um, as they try to engage in the labor market and they're on their own. And um, it was just a, it's a real, it's a real sad story, but it's one that gives us hope, gives me hope at least that, you know, we might be able to craft similar legislation together uh, again and hopefully get a future president to sign it. And, and one of the ways that you, you push to, Think about that and, and think about how policymakers might consider uh, addressing some of these issues is with this idea of these four issues that you phrase in terms of here, there, care and fair. 
Now, without going into the depth of each one of these, which you put a whole chapter of the book into, maybe you could just touch on each one uh, and, and what they suggest about the future design of, of social policy. Yeah, so, um, so when we think about social policy in the United States, um, you know, most of the, the bucket of what we have was all laid out in the 1930s as either part of the Social Security Act or the Fair Labor Standards Act or the National Labor Relations Act. These are the fundamental pieces of legislation that define um, what we think of as our social insurance and our labor standards. And what I propose in the book is that we need to rethink that. Um, what we have in place is great and important, but it doesn't address how people can get to work and be highly productive workers, given that they also have care responsibilities. Because our current system, um, you know, all of the, the wonderful pieces under the Social Security Act, they're about keeping people out of the labor market, you know, paying or, or helping people when they can't work. Um, you know, how do we deal when somebody needs to retire? How do we deal when somebody's disabled? How do we deal when someone's unemployed? They're not about, well, how do we deal when somebody has a job, but they need a little bit of time off um, uh, when they have a new child or when they have a seriously ill family member that they just need a little bit of time to care for, but they want to keep their job. So our whole system isn't sort of structured to think of how we support people who have care responsibilities to be in the labor market. So I broke it down into these four basic components, which is that we need policies for when we need to be here at home, not at work. Um, and uh, so there we need policies like paid family medical leave, paid sick days, when you just need a little bit of time to, you know, I, I got the flu or my kid has the flu or my mom needs some help because she's in the hospital this week and I need to be with her. But I don't want to lose my job and, and my job is important. But, I, but somebody's got to be at home. And by the way, I don't, there's no stay-at-home caregiver at my house because most families don't have that. So what do you do when you need to be here at home? And that supports labor force attachment. It supports productivity. Um, it supports the household economic demand. Very important economic findings that show that this is important. The next is what do we do when we need to be there at work? And how can we make sure that doesn't make it impossible to be a good caregiver? And here it's really important to have predictable schedules or um, scheduling flexibility that works for workers, not just for firms. And the Fair Labor Standards Act doesn't give us anything on these at this point, doesn't talk to us about yet about um, scheduling predictability or, or right to request flexibility. These are important areas to be thinking about so that people can have schedules that work for them and their families. Again, this affects retention, labor supply, it affects productivity, all of which affects household economic demand. The, the third area is care. We've talked a little bit on this podcast already about child care. Um, so child care is important, but also elder care. We live, of course, in an aging society, and without a stay-at-home caregiver, somebody has to take off time in many families to care for that aging elder. Without, um, you know, and if you don't have a little bit of time, or if you don't have a system that provides that support, that can that can mean pulling out of the labor market. So we don't, you don't necessarily want someone in their prime working years dropping out of the labor force because they just can't find a home health aide to come and check on their mom once a day in a way that's affordable. Um, so the, the care, it's got to be quality and it's got to be affordable. So that's, those are the axes there. And then finally, embedded in all of this is a notion of fairness. We haven't fully integrated into how we think about the economy. The caregivers are also workers and discriminating against them because they have care responsibilities isn't there. It's, they don't, they don't, you know, quote unquote, belong back at home. They, they need to be in the labor market to support their families or they want to be. And um, we need to make sure that those workers don't experience discrimination and that we stop ignoring this really important issue in our federal policymaking. 
So here, there, care, fair, it rhymes. Um, it also helps me remember. <laughs> it gives us some buckets now, to think about it. Now, now, given the current state of affairs in Washington, uh, where you are based, some of these proposals may seem unlikely. Um, but you say in the book that many of them are already implemented at the state or the local level, that, that in fact, government is doing some of these things. Would you tell us a little bit about some of the state and local communities that are already investing in the types of family policies that you describe in the book? Yes, and I'm so excited to, to talk about this. Um, I moved to Washington in the year 2000 to start working in a think tank here, and um, I've been working on this basket of issues really in, in full force for the last decade. And um, over the course of when I wrote the book, which took me up a, you know, the past three years, um, I could actually say that every single idea that I talked about in the book is right now being tested someplace in America as a policy idea. And that is a remarkable accomplishment and achievement. Um, so let me give you a couple of examples. And, you know, even though we talked about you know, Washington, you know, here in Washington, we can't get things done. Things are happening at the state and local level. So California, New Jersey, and Rhode Island um, all now have in place paid family and medical leave social insurance programs. Washington State has passed legislation but hasn't yet implemented it. But there's three states that have it. In those states, if you, are, uh, if you work and live in those states, you can take time off and get an, a benefit uh, if you have a new child, if you have a serious uh, personal illness, or if you have to care for a seriously ill family member. Um, we haven't seen new statewide social insurance programs in decades. And this is a remarkable accomplishment, and it's a testament to how important it is um, to people in these communities. It's also given researchers the opportunity to go in now and do some in-depth analysis um, and to say, hey, well, what does this do to these economies? And we found that, um, and you see from the, the body of research out there now, that about uh, 9 in 10 firms report that the, that the, in California, report that the effects of paid family and medical leave on their, their, their workplaces is either positive or there's not an effect. So only 10% say that there's any at all negative effect of this in their, in their workplaces. That's a remarkable statistic um, and should give us a lot of ground for thinking about what we need to do at the federal level. And, and what are some of those positive effects? Because these are, I think, what, what surprised some people or, or might be surprising. What are the, what are the positive effects that, that have been uh, actually documented in a, in a place like California? So in California, um, they, uh, there's some researchers that went out and surveyed both employers and employees before and after the implementation of the paid family leave um, policy. And um, for employers, uh, they found improvements in uh, retention. Um, you see that people who have access to paid leave are more likely to return to their, their employer, not just to the workforce, but to their job, which, of course, has implications for productivity. You also see, you also see um, firms reporting higher productivity. You see them reporting effects on morale, um, which also can affect turnover. Um, you see them reporting positive effects on profitability in no small part because of turnover and, and uh, productivity. You know, one thing we don't um, talk about enough when we're thinking about the economic effects of a policy, um, you know, it, it is true, um, 100% true, and I say this as an employer, um, that uh, when somebody needs that time off, it's a burden, right? It's a, I, my assistant is out today because her mom is seriously ill. Um, I've had other uh, staff who's had to go out on um, parental leave. 
um, it's, a, it's a real burden because you have to figure out how to cope in their absence. But what the social insurance program does in California is it means that when you have those big absences, like a parental leave, the employer doesn't have to worry about how to pay for it. They have to worry about what happens at the, at the work site, but they don't have to worry about what's happening for the employee, and that's a huge relief. Because the reality is, is that for any good employer, anyone who's, you know, got a heart at all or has a good policy at their workplace, you know, when their employee has a new baby and they're out, um, they're not going to say, okay, well, you had your baby yesterday, get in here tomorrow. They already have to cope with the employee's absence. And so what the policy does is it actually allows them to not have to worry about the money side of the equation and just cope with the problem that, quite frankly, is already staring them in the face now. So it doesn't create a problem, it solves the problem when you think about that policy this way. Now, most people would expect sort of a, a, a policy like this in a, in a place like California. Are there any surprises for you of, of states or localities that would be a, a surprise to us that are, that are trying these kinds of um, policy experimentations, a, a, a place that sticks out to you uh, that maybe surprised you when you learned about it? Yeah, um, so especially in the area of expansion to universal pre-K, um, pre-kindergarten, um, uh, Georgia and Oklahoma have been at the forefront of this movement, um, implementing universal pre-K for, um, for small children, four-year-olds and then three-year-olds, before um, other states. And so I think that is a testament to the, um, to the really big issue that childcare is in many places around the country um, and how they sort of said, well, we, we can deal with this at the statewide level. We don't need to kind of have this every 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 parent for themselves so that is that is an area where you've seen some uh some movement in so-called red states ahead of some of the blue states one thing i will note about the california example um though while it may seem it's obvious because oh, of course it's california um i it's the, the reason that california was actually able to do paid families first is because there are only five states in the country that have a long-standing temporary disability insurance program um, that already gives benefits to individual workers when they have a, a, an own disability. So those five states have an infrastructure to implement a paid family leave program. They already have staff. They already have a system of a, you know, the taxes and all of that infrastructure set up. So um, of those five, those five states are California, New Jersey, Rhode Island, the three, three, the three states that have implemented the family leave on top of the disability insurance, and then the two others are New York and Hawaii. So, um, so while it may be that California did it because it was a blue state, it may also do, have, be the case, and I think it's actually a stronger argument, that they did it because they had an infrastructure they could tap into, which I think speaks to the, the, the concern that we need to start moving towards a federal conversation because other states don't have that infrastructure um, that they can build on. Yeah, the, the book, again, is Finding Time, The Economies of Work-Life Conflict, published by Harvard University Press in 2016. Heather Boucher, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much.